Welcome to Practical Theology, a podcast series by Battle Creek Friends Church. Our hope is that by listening, you feel equipped in your faith to speak out in confidence about what you believe and live it out. We're here to help you seek the Lord throughout your day. So here's your host, Bible teacher, father, husband, and guy who likes cookies, Leo Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode two of Practical Theology. Today's topic, God in positions of leadership. During this political season in 2020, which this is recorded afterwards so that no one can say like I was trying to persuade people to vote one way or the other. Not that that would necessarily be wrong, but that's not the point of this podcast. The point is to bring honor to God and to think about how it applies to our lives. But one thing I've seen on social media and other conversations that have come up is about Romans 13. It reads like this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So some obvious questions come up from this. Does God really pick the individual leader? We'll see that this question needs to be defined better. But on the surface, it looks like God just picks a leader. We'll define that better and talk about what God actually does. Second, is there any evidence to see how God does such a thing? And we'll explore scripture and see times when he has done such a thing. The third one is our role. What are we to do in elections? Does our vote matter? We'll answer all three of these questions uh, in, in several parts. But in the first part, let's address something underlying the first question. The first question there we talked about, does God actually pick the leader? Maybe we could talk about miracles first. And I'm not going to go deep into miracles, but any Christian should believe in miracles. The, the virgin birth, the resurrection, these are all miracles. And it's a big part of our faith. But specifically, sometimes I think we struggle with believing in miracles that apply to us personally. Like, does God actually care about myself as an individual? You know, does he intervene in my life or just the affairs of the world? So that's the first one I want to tackle. Why do we need to tackle that? I think it's important because it determines if we see that person in leadership as truly put there by God, then these things in Romans 13 become a little bit easier to live and understand. If we don't quite believe that, then we struggle with submitting to authority. We struggle in our role as a citizen of our country and understanding how we treat our leaders. So I definitely want to address the first question. To do that, let's talk about, oh, examples like um, Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a leader that God has appointed, and it's Isaiah 44, 28. And it's about Cyrus, and he was a Persian emperor, 
And God says he anointed him to carry out his will. Here's what Isaiah 44, 28 says. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. So here's a non-Jewish leader that God has appointed and is using for his purposes. He calls him his shepherd. So we see an example of God not only picking Jewish leaders in scripture, um, but also foreign leaders to play a role in what he wills for the earth. So maybe more common, if we look at this, it's like, okay, Leo, I get that. God can intervene in life for people, for world order and, and things of this nature. But I think I want to address it even down to a part of an individual, just so we understand how deeply God does go. And so that's an example of, is it always global, um, large purposes, like from a worldly definition? Or does God, let's say, just look for an individual? After all, you are his child, you are significant to him. So even looking outside of scripture, do we see examples in life where that are just unbelievable, you know, that God intervenes? And Bill Arnold, a theologian, has one that uh, he found in Reader's Digest, 1948, January 10th. And he actually verified this story. He's like, this is too unbelievable. And so he called Reader's Digest. They sent him a, a magazine from that year. Um, they had an old copy and just verified the story. And I think it serves as an example of, think about how many things in this story go beyond coincidence. And the point is to say, hey, look, God intervenes. Here we go. On January 10th, 1948, just over two years after the conclusion of World War II, Marcel Sternberger got on a train in the Brooklyn subway he had never been on before. He normally took a different line, but he had changed his schedule in order to visit a sick friend that morning and was now boarding a noon train to get to work. The train was full, but just as he stepped in, one man jumped up and ran off, realizing he was about to miss his station. Sternberger quickly took the seat and sat down. Next to him was a man reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger had been born in Hungary, and though he would not normally strike up a conversation with strangers in the subway, he felt compelled to say something. He looked over the man's shoulder and said in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man was surprised to be addressed in his, in his native language, and during the half-hour ride to town, they became acquainted. Sternberger's companion voluntarily shared his tragic story. His name was Paskin, and he had been a law student when the war started. He was eventually put into a labor battalion and sent to Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot, returned to his home in Debrecen, Hungary, and discovered his entire family gone. Strangers were living in the apartment he once occupied by his father, mothers, brothers, and sisters. When he reached the apartment he and his wife had shared, it also was occupied by strangers. Finally, he located old friends in Debrecen who had survived the war. They sadly informed him his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken them and his wife to Auschwitz where they were all presumably killed in the gas chamber. Stunned by the news, the man fled Hungary, which had become a funeral land for him. He headed west toward Paris and emigrated to the United States in October 1947. As Sternberger listened, the story seemed somehow familiar. Suddenly, he remembered why. He had recently met a young woman at the home of friends who had also been from Debrecen. 
She had been taken to Auschwitz, but was then transferred to work in a German munitions factory. All her relatives had been killed in the gas chamber. After she had been liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New York in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Sternberger had been so moved by her story, he had written down her address and phone number, hoping to invite her to his, meet his family in order to help her with her terrible loneliness and grief. Sternberger thought it impossible that there could be any connection between these two people, but when he reached the station, he stayed on the train with his new friend. He asked as casually as possible, is your first name Bella? The man went pale as he said, yes. How did you know? Sternberger fumbled for his address book as he asked, was your wife's name Maria? Look as though he might faint, Paskin said, yes, yes. Sternberger suggested that they get off at the next station without explaining why. He took Paskin to a nearby phone booth. While Paskin stood there like a man in a trance, Sternberger dialed the number, and after a long delay, he had Maria Paskin on the line. Sternberger reminded her of their recent chance meeting, and she remembered him. Without explaining why, Sternberger asked Maria where she had lived in Debrecen before the war, and she told him the address. Sternberger turned to Bella and said, Did you and your wife live at such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed, as he turned white as a sheet and trembled. Sternberger urged him to stay calm, but then explained that something miraculous was about to happen to him. Then he handed Bella the phone, saying, Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. When Paskin realized he was really speaking with his Mariah, he broke into uncontrollable crying. Sternberger sent him by taxi to the address to be reunited with his wife. The article continues to describe the emotional reunion between the Paskins, each of whom thought the other was dead. Maria Paskin hardly remembers their reunion because of the sudden release of emotions. I remember only that I, what I felt on the phone. I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see maybe if my hair had turned gray. Then the next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of my house and it's my husband who comes toward me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much. I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Well, there are, of course, a lot of explanations for that story. But if you think about the story, the man taking a different rail line to see his friend, the person that steps off the train enough that he can actually get the seat next to the Hungarian person, the coincidence of sharing the story and then him running into his wife and being so moved by her story that he decides he's going to invite her over for dinner and having the information. At some point, you have to stop saying things are coincidental and start to give recognition to divine intervention. And here, this example, going to the idea of leadership, I just want to make the point that God does this in different aspects of life. It doesn't matter if it's just world leaders or two people who were separated. He inter he, he's involved. He's living and active in our world, not just through scripture, but in presence. Think about Hebrews 13, 2. Um, the, the story goes that, uh, Hebrews 13, 2 goes like this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is a reference to Genesis 18 and Abraham and Sarah. 
there's these three visitors who turn out to be angelic. One is directly apparent to be a messenger of God, if not God in angelic form. And he's entertaining them. And it's interesting to see how him and Sarah are blessed. The the angelic visitors say that, hey, this time next year, if we were to visit, you will be having a child, fulfilling the promise God has said to you that you will be a father of many nations, a father uh, of a child. And he's, he's childless at this point. Sarah overhears them and laughs at it and is doubting. Well, this chance encounter where God intervenes uh, not only reminds Abraham of the promise and encourages him in the blessing, but also convicts his wife of her doubt. All these happen, happen with an appointed time that God shows up. So much so he can, he can do the same thing with leaders, right? This is what we're, our point of Romans 13 study is. God involves himself in the world in many ways. And appointing leaders should be no surprise. As a matter of fact, it says so in scripture. I think a, even a bigger example is Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. Listen to this and how God interacts into the lives of the Israelites. The prophet Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 14 says this, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voice of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstones and the light of a lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring on the land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Here again, you see God active in Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says he's his appointed leader, his servant, and he's going to use him to discipline Israel in a sense, to, I would almost say, bring reform. They need to repent. They're not doing so. God gives them warnings. He's very patient with them. But at some point, discipline has to be has to be accomplished to fulfill God's purpose. And he uses the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I find it also interesting in the latter part of that passage where he sits there and says, after the 70 years, I will then also punish the Babylonians. So even though God has a servant um, or uses somebody to serve his purpose, it doesn't mean that what they're doing would just be like all fine. God orchestrates these things differently, but as a servant of God, um, no one is sinless, right? People still make mistakes, um, and God can also use those mistakes to further his agendas, right? You see this in Joseph um, with him being sold into slavery and what God intended for good. So this isn't surprising that you can see God appoint leaders. The leaders would accomplish God's purpose, and in doing so, the leader also, in the end, is going to be rebuked by God, like challenged by God. We'll talk about how these things can all happen um, like coinciding with one another uh, in the next part of the podcast when we talk about how God accomplishes this appointment. Is it just he puts somebody here or is there a direct involvement with his people? But for now, I think I want to answer the one question. God intervenes and does appoint leaders. And with that, we need to look at every leader 
as a servant from God and obey Romans 13. Now, are there exceptions to this? Yes, there are exceptions. The idea of is called a moral conflict. We'll talk about this in a later podcast too, one on ethics. But for the short term, let's say this. Clearly, God's law supersedes all other laws, right? God's law takes precedence over any human law. So if a leader was to tell you to do something ungodly, then that would be wrong. You would not listen to that, and that would be the exceptions of the Romans 13. But if it's something that is not against Scripture, you have no reason to not do it. If you can't think of an ethical reason or a biblical reason that you should not do something and a leader asks you to do it, then according to Romans 13, you're in the wrong for not doing it. And that's pretty deep. So it's not that you can circumvent God's law. It's not that you can sit there and say, well, he says I got to obey human rulers, um, so I have to do this, which is against Scripture. That's not the case. God's law takes precedence over all other laws. But in looking at Romans 13, there is room for human ruling and law, and we need to address those. With that, I think of my dad sometimes when I was younger and always remembering the conflict that I had where, you know, at some point in time, mom would say, you just wait until your father gets home. And I'd be like, oh, no, man, my brother and I did it again. And I would dread that involvement. Then there were other times I can remember saying something to my brother like, dude, don't worry, dad will be home soon. You know, like, like this will get fixed. Interesting how our view of our father when he would be present with us would depend on the view of ourselves. Like, are we doing something that we deserve punishment? Are we doing something that we need help? And I think that's an important thing for us as citizens. We should think about our role in the world that God has appointed us to, you know, to be examples for him, to be a Christian witness. And we should always assess that in our lives. In the next podcast, we'll talk about how God appoints leaders and our role in that. But for now, I think it's important to just know that God does appoint leaders and we need to respect that leadership secondarily to respecting God most high. Thanks. And until next time, go and live it out.